Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. guys what is up welcome back to my channel and welcome back to another episode of killer instinct if you're new here hi my name is savannah and i'm your host of killer instinct before we get started make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button that way you never miss an episode we post weekly on the podcast every wednesday on all podcast platforms and you can also find the video version on youtube as well so it's killer instinct wednesdays and as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we have another survival story case. Now, being a true crime podcast, we typically don't cover survival stories very often. However, when we do, the one common denominator they all have is that they are absolutely horrific, and this case is no exception. So with that being said, let's just jump right on into it today. Barbara Mackle was born in 1948 to her parents, Robert and Jane Mackle. Now, Barbara grew up in a very prestigious and luxurious lifestyle. She came from a family that had a lot of wealth, and that was due to her father, Robert. Robert was a Florida land developer who had gotten into business with his two brothers and taken over the family company called the Mackle Company. The Mackle Company was originally founded by their father in 1908, and when their father died, Robert and his two brothers took over the company. The company was known to develop many multi-million projects throughout the United States, so because of that, Robert wasn't short on cash by any stretch of the imagination. The family resided in Coral Gables, Florida, which is located near Miami and has been listed numerous times on different lists as one of Florida's nicest places to live. So because of that, Barbara grew up having really the best of the best of everything. She had the best clothes, the best shoes, and she was always very put together. Now, regardless of the upbringing that she had and the advantages that she had due to that, Barbara was also a very hard worker. She was incredibly intelligent, and after high school, she went on to attend Emory University, which is located in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was at Emory where she ended up meeting her boyfriend, a man named Stuart Woodward. The two of them met and headed off right away. Now, this case really all begins in 1968. During this time, Barbara was still in college at Emory and she was 20 years old. So we're looking at the end of 1968 in December. And at this time, there was actually a flu outbreak that had spread all throughout Emory's campus. And this wasn't just like your average sickness, your average illness. This specific flu has actually been referred to as the Hong Kong flu, and it killed millions of people in just one 
year. So this was something that was spreading very, very rapidly throughout campus. Many, many students were getting it. And Barbara was also one of the students that had fallen sick from this flu. Now, Barbara was meant to fly back down to Coral Gables to be with her family for the holidays because, like I said, this was in December. However, her mom, Jane, decided that instead of having Barbara fly, the best thing to do would be to go drive up to Emory herself, get Barbara, and then the two of them would drive back home to Coral Gables to celebrate the holidays together. So this all brings us to the early morning hours of December 17th, 1968. The night prior, December 16th, is when Jane had arrived at Emory and picked up Barbara, and the two of them decided before embarking on the long drive ahead of them to get a good night's sleep and then just start the drive early in the day on the 17th. So the night of the 16th, they decided to book a room at the Roadway Inn Hotel, which was only about 13 minutes away from Emory's campus. In the early morning hours of December 17th at around 4 a.m., Jane and Barbara were woken up to a knock on the door. Now, the room that they were staying in had two queen beds, and so Jane was staying in the bed that was closest to the door, and Barbara was in the bed closest to the hotel wall. So when the unexpected knock came on the door, Jane got out of bed and walked over to the door. Jane did have the lock latch on the door, so she only opened it a crack. And when she did, she noticed that there was a police officer standing outside of the door. And once Jane started getting into conversation with this police officer, she was asked by him if she knew a guy named Stuart Woodward, which like I mentioned earlier, was Barbara's boyfriend. He said the reason he was asking was because Stuart had gotten into a very serious car crash and the cop needed to come inside to talk to Jane and Barbara about the details of it. Now, with it being four in the morning and there's a cop outside your hotel room door and he's telling you that one of your loved ones has been in a car accident, Jane's first instinct was to unlock the lock latch on the door and have the cop come in. However, she quickly realized that was a terrible mistake. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Now, when Jane opened the door, not only did the cop walk in, but a second man had walked into the room as well. And this time, this man had a gun pointed at Jane and Barbara. Barbara remembers the second man to be wearing dark pants, a yellow sweater, and a leather jacket. And once this second man walked in with a gun, it was pretty apparent that these two were a team and this cop was not a cop. 
Now, at first, Barbara and Jane were both under the impression that they were being robbed. And so Jane basically told the men to take any jewelry they wanted, take any money, just don't hurt them. She offered everything she had, all of the clothes, all the material items that she could give them, she was trying to. However, that is not what these men were here for. The man with the gun pointed it at Barbara and ordered her to face the wall while the man dressed up as the police officer began tying up Jane. He tied her wrists and her ankles together before ultimately holding a rag over her face and pinning her down in order to knock her out with chloroform. Now, like I mentioned, this is a survival story and Barbara has written a book about her experience and the book is called 83 Hours Till Dawn. And in this book, she recalls both of the attackers. She said it was very clear that one of the men was much smaller and shorter in stature compared to the man dressed as the police officer. She actually quoted in the book saying that this second man more so resembled a 15-year-old boy. She thought it was a young teenager. Now, after Jane had been chloroformed and knocked unconscious, Barbara was held at gunpoint and ordered to walk to the getaway car that these two men had waiting outside for them. Now, when the three of them entered the car, the man dressed as the cop had gotten into the front seat to drive, while the man who was smaller in stature had gotten into the back seat with Barbara. Once they had gotten into the car and Barbara was able to hear both of these people communicate with each other, it became very clear to Barbara that the accomplice in all of this, the person that was sitting in the back of the car with Barbara, was actually a woman. And when Barbara realized this, she actually saw it as an advantage. She thought it would be a lot easier for her to try to connect with the woman emotionally and try to, you know, tug on her heartstrings a little bit and play the sympathy card of, you know, woman to woman, why are you doing this? And it did work to an extent because Barbara remembers that this woman over and over again was trying to do her best to comfort Barbara by telling her that she was going to be fine and if she listened to orders, they wouldn't hurt her. Now, ultimately, the three of them ended up driving approximately 20 miles before they ended up in a very remote, large piece of wooded land. When the three of them exited the car, they began walking through the wooded area before ultimately they landed upon a shallow grave that had a fiberglass box inside of it. Now, inside of the box were several items. There were two air pumps, a small lantern, 30,000 calories worth of food, as well as water that was laced with tranquilizers. Now, you can only attempt to imagine what Barbara was thinking in that moment because when she saw this box, she knew what her fate was and that the next demand was going to be for her to get inside of this box. Now, throughout the entire car ride and walk through the forest, Barbara had tried her best to appease her two kidnappers. She tried to do everything she could to keep them calm and listen to them just as the woman in the car told her to do because as I said, she told her to just listen and she wouldn't get hurt. However, once she saw this box and then was demanded to get inside of it, Barbara's fight or flight kicked in and she started severely panicking and she basically told her attackers, she said, I will go anywhere else. 
According to Barbara, she told them that they could tie her up in a basement. They could put her anywhere. Just don't make her get into this box in the ground. If you're listening to me on the podcast and you're not watching the video where you can see the pictures, you wouldn't be able to tell. However, this box, just so we're clear, is not like a large box that has a lot of room that you can stand up in. This is a shallow grave about four feet deep that has a coffin-sized box inside of it. The box was only big enough for Barbara to just lay straight down in. Now, after demanding that Barbara get in the box, the man also went on to explain to Barbara what was going to happen. He told Barbara that once she got into the box, they were going to cover her with the fiberglass. However, they were going to give her two air pumps and those two air pumps were enough air for her to be inside of that box for a week. So it's enough air supply for seven days inside of that box. He also explained to her that he would be coming by every two hours to check on her safety, but also to ensure that she didn't try to run away. Now, like I said, Barbara pleaded with them from the very beginning to not make her get inside of this box. And she even told them that her dad, Robert, would pay anything for her not to get inside of the box. And when she said that, the man responded to her by saying, quote, we know Mackle will pay. And when Barbara heard him say this, it actually indicated to her that these people knew who she was. She had never once told them her name, told them her last name. So it was very clear to her in that moment that they knew who she was and they knew where she came from. Now, ultimately, Barbara was demanded and forced to lay down inside of this fiberglass box. And when she did, the woman out of the duo tried to comfort Barbara and told her, Barbara, it's going to be okay. And that was the second indication to Barbara that they knew who she was because again, she had never told them what her name was. So for them to call her by her first name and then reference her by her last name, everything was starting to piece a little bit more and more together for her. Barbara recalled that before she was placed into the box and during the time that she was trying to plead with her kidnappers to not let her go inside of the box, she was given a shot of a drug that her attackers told her was half strength, but was going to make her not worry about what was happening around her. It was going to make her feel very loopy. She wasn't really going to feel a lot of stress. Now, Barbara did try to fight off the drugs. She tried to fight away from getting the shot. However, ultimately, both of her attackers held her down and they gave her the shot. A few seconds after she was given the shot, they then took Barbara and placed her inside of the box. And after doing so, they then gave her a piece of paper that had the word kidnapped drawn on it and took her picture in the shallow grave. They then placed the top of the fiberglass on top of the box. They gave Barbara the air tubes and then shoveled two feet of mud on top of the box, essentially burying Barbara alive. Now in that book that I mentioned that Barbara had written, she quotes saying, I screamed and screamed. The sound of dirt got farther and farther away. Finally, I couldn't hear anything above. I screamed for a long time after that, end quote. 
So I've talked a lot about this man and this woman, and you're probably sitting here wondering, who are these people? Who are the people that kidnapped Barbara Mackle? So now we're going to get into that. The two people that were responsible for the kidnapping of Barbara Mackle were Gary Stephen Christ and Ruth Eisman Shire. Gary was born on April 29th, 1945, and was 23 years old when he kidnapped Barbara. He was born in Washington and grew up in Pelican, Alaska before moving to Utah. And Gary was definitely not a stranger to crime. He began committing robberies at the age of 14, and after being caught stealing a car, it ultimately ended up landing him in prison by the time he turned 18. Now, Gary actually ended up escaping from prison in November 1966 with another inmate. The two of them escaped from Dual Vocational Institution, which is located in California. And after escaping, Gary made his way down to Florida, where he resided for several years. Ruth Eisman Shire, on the other hand, was born on November 8th, 1942, so she was about three years older than Gary. She was born in Honduras and graduated college at the National University of Mexico and then went on to attend the University of Miami's Institute of Marine Science. Now, it was at the University of Miami that both Ruth and Gary actually began a romantic relationship together. And what we didn't know at the time that this was all happening that we know now is that this attack on Barbara was very strategic and very calculated. Gary had been working at the University of Miami, where Ruth also was. Like I said, that's how the two of them met. And he had been stalking Barbara for months leading up to the kidnapping. Now, what we didn't know then that we know now is that Gary had been stalking Barbara for months leading up to her kidnapping. For Gary, the whole goal in kidnapping Barbara was to get ransom money. He wanted to kidnap someone that came from a background of a lot of wealth, someone who would be willing to pay a very large amount of ransom money in return for their saved child. And after stalking Barbara for months, he knew very quickly that she was going to be his target. For example, the reason that Gary knew to knock on the door dressed as a police officer and ask about Stuart was because he had been stalking Barbara for months. So he knew so he knew what her schedule was, he knew what she liked to do in her free time, and he knew who her friends were and who her boyfriend was. Now I want to backtrack a second and go back to talking about Jane because after several hours of being tied up and chloroformed, she actually came to, she regained consciousness and she realized that Barbara was gone. Now her hands and feet were still tied up so she ended up hopping out of her hotel room which caught the attention of the hotel employees who then untied her and gave her a phone to call the police. After calling the police, she called Stuart because Stuart, again, was at the Emory campus. He was only 13 minutes away. So she called Stuart to get him to come to the motel and meet her there. And Stuart was actually the one who initially called Robert. He called Robert on the phone and let him know what was happening because Jane was talking to authorities and still was on the phone with police. And when Robert heard what happened, he immediately got off the phone with Stuart and got a flight straight to Atlanta. 
Now, I mentioned that Robert was very affluent and he did have a lot of connections, one of those being Richard Nixon. And at the time that this had happened, Richard Nixon was right about to be sworn in to be inaugurated as the president of the United States. And so he was the president-elect. And Robert and Richard had known each other. They were decent friends, enough friends where Robert was able to call Richard and let him know of the situation. And once Richard Nixon became aware of it, he then called the FBI directly and spoke with the FBI director at the time, which was a man named J. Edgar Hoover and asked Jay to direct the investigation himself, which obviously Jay complied with doing, and the investigation really began there. Now, the FBI all arrived to the Roadway Inn Hotel, and once they arrived, they ended up taking over room 137, which was only four doors down from room 133, which is where Jane and Barbara were staying. Now, once Robert went to Atlanta, he pretty much just went there to pick Jane up and bring her back home to Coral Gables. And it was that same day when they returned home that Robert and Jane received a phone call to their home phone from a caller who provided directions to a ransom note that was placed on their property. Now, the note was put out by Gary and Ruth. However, it was set out there days before the kidnapping took place. And once Robert and Jane went out to this tree, they found the three-page ransom note, which I am going to read to you right now. It is quite long. However, I feel like for you guys to get the whole depth of everything that's happening, I think it is important to just read it. So I am going to read it for you. So the note reads like this. Sir, your daughter has been kidnapped by us, and we now hold her for ransom. She is quite safe, if somewhat uncomfortable. We offer no proof of our possession of her at this time. It will arrive by mail in a few days. Barbara is presently alive inside a small capsule buried in a remote piece of soil. She has enough food and water and air to last seven days. At the end of the seven days, the life-supporting batteries will be discharged and her air supply will be cut off. The box is waterproof and very strong fiberglass and reinforced plywood. She has very little chance of escaping. The box is in an unusual and lonely place. She has no chance of being accidentally stumbled upon. Contemplate, if you will, the position into which this puts you. If you pay the ransom prior to seven days, we will tell you her whereabouts. Should you catch the messenger we send to pick up the ransom, we will simply not say anything to anyone, and ergo, Barbara will suffocate. The messenger knows only one of us, and he will report to us via radio from the pickup site. We will immediately know his fate. Should you catch all of us, we will never admit anything, as to do so would be suicide, and again, she will die. As you can see, you don't want to catch us, for to do so would be condemning your lovely and intelligent daughter to death. The police may allow you to have a free hand prior to the return of your daughter, should you be so callous as to call them. If you ask the police to advise you in this matter, please be aware that their presence will scare us off. We can see no way for you to secure the safe return of your daughter other than to obey instructions specifically. 
Number one, although we will always anticipate the involvement of police in this situation, be assured that if your communication with them or the actual presence is detected, we will break off negotiations with you immediately. We have tied into several of the possible means of communications that you have with the police and feel that you will be unable to contact them without our knowledge. Number two, the ransom note will be $500,000 in recently used $20 bills. Here are the requirements you must meet in this matter. The notes must not be older than 1950 issued. No more than 10 notes must have consecutive serial numbers. Example, the notes must have a great variety of serial numbers and not be merely shuffled. The notes must be Federal Reserve notes or standard configuration. No more than one half of the notes may be uncirculated. No form of marking on the bills is acceptable. Please note that the bills will undergo a minimum of eight hours of intense examination before we allow you to have knowledge of the subject's whereabouts. We have planned a series of 44 tests on a large representative of the bills. These tests include every chemical and physical test of any remote applicability. No omission, shaving, spotting, cutting, counterfeiting, irritating, ad nose will go undetected. Number three, the bill should occupy no more than 400 cubic inches and thusly fit into a standard large suitcase inside of the dimensions of 31.5 inches long and 18.75 inches high and 6.25 inches deep. Purchase such a suitcase and lock the bills inside. When you have the money in readiness, call all the Miami area major newspapers and place the following ad in the personal section, classified advertisements. Loved ones, please come home. We will pay all expenses and meet you anywhere at any time, your family. Prepare your car for a trip and on the night of the ad's first appearance, we will call you at home after midnight to advise you of where you must go to deliver the money. You must be the one to deliver the money, Robert. You will dress yourself in an all-white outfit. You must use the Lincoln to deliver the money. In order to prevent the instructional call being traced, it will be very brief and no portion of it will be repeated. If the phone rings more than three times or the connection takes longer than 15 seconds, we will not contact you. You will have a limited period of time to make the rendezvous, so you should be ready to leave your house within one minute of receiving the phone call in order to be within the the time limit. You will proceed to the area of the meeting within the legal speed limit as if you were in no hurry. We will not meet you if you fail to show within the time limit, which is only a short time longer than you will require to drive to the pickup site. Any unusual police activity or other activity in the area of the pickup will cancel the appointment. When you arrive at the pickup site, you will know it by a signal of three short flashes repeated continuously from a flashlight directed at the windshield of your car. When you see the signal, you will stop the car immediately and take the suitcase towards the light. The light will be mounted on top of a box. The suitcase should be placed within the box. You will then return to your car and proceed back up the street in the direction from which you came and go home. Any deviation from this outline will result in your death. Our messenger will have you in his sights from the time you leave your car. Within 12 hours after you deliver the money, you will receive another call advising of your daughter's whereabouts. A letter will be sent also to ensure the findings of your daughter. End quote. Okay, so that is the note. And again, I know it was very long, but I think it's very important so we all understand what is going on here. 
Now, when Robert received the note, he did not think twice and he began following the instructions. He got the $500,000, which is equivalent today to about $4.28 million, and he got it all in $20 bills. He placed the ad in the paper like he was advised to do, letting them know that they had the money. Now, in the first attempt to drop off the money, This attempt was actually failed after a nearby neighbor had spotted the kidnappers going to receive the money and the neighbor called the police to report suspicious activity. And again, I know it said in the letter that there was a messenger. However, it is believed that it was only the kidnappers, Gary and Ruth, who went to go get the money because their car was found near the scene. The two of them got so freaked out that they decided not to get back in their car and instead they ran on foot in order to flee the scene. Now, when cops arrived to the area, they ended up canvassing and finding the car. And when they looked inside of the car, not only did they find the accessories to a police costume, but they also found the registration to the car and were able to realize that the car was registered to a man named George Deacon. Now, authorities tracked down George Deacon and were able to figure out that he worked at the University of Miami building ventilated boxes for a living. Police contacted George's boss who informed them that there was another woman named Ruth who was George's girlfriend. And it was also around this same time that the police were contacted by a man in Georgia claiming that he had just purchased a trailer. And when cleaning out the trailer, he found paperwork inside that were letters addressed to a man named George Deacon and Gary Christ. And it was through the fingerprints on those letters, as well as the fingerprints in the car, that police were able to connect the two and confirm that Gary was an escaped inmate. And after Comparing the fingerprints, they also were able to confirm that George Deacon was an alias that Gary had used, and they were actually the same person. So that is why George Deacon, quote unquote, boss, had said that Ruth and George were dating is because George was actually Gary. Now, because the first ransom attempt was a fail, Robert and Jane immediately moved forward with a second ransom attempt. They ended up putting another ad in the paper using the same language they did the first time to let the kidnappers know that they were doing this again. Now, this time, luckily, the ransom attempt went through. The money was dropped off in the suitcase, just as advised, And after Gary and Ruth had received the suitcase, the FBI was then notified of Barbara's whereabouts. They were told that Barbara was buried near Berkeley Lake in Georgia, which is a small town located about 25 miles northeast of Atlanta. The FBI arrived on the scene immediately and spread out all throughout the area and started digging, searching for Barbara. They finally were able to find her burial spot and began digging before they ended up hitting the box that she was being held in. Luckily, when they found Barbara, she was still alive. Now, Barbara had lost 10 pounds, but when taken to go be checked out by doctors, the only issue that they really found with Barbara medically at that time was that she was just dehydrated. So it was really a miracle that not only was she able to survive those nights and days in that box, however, she also didn't have any long-term injuries or anything because of it. Now, luckily, the FBI director called Richard and Jane to let them know that Barbara had been rescued and she was reunited with her parents that 
night. Obviously, this case was everywhere in the media, and there were multiple interviews with Barbara, and she was just saying that she never doubted that she would be rescued and that all she pictured in her mind was just spending Christmas with her family that year, which was just several days after she was rescued. And so that's really what helped pull her through those really challenging and trying three days. So now that they had Barbara rescued, police knew that they needed to find Gary and Ruth. And at this point, Gary was hiding in South Florida with Ruth. However, ultimately, the two decided to go their separate ways and end their relationship. Now, obviously, this made things more difficult for police because now you have two people going in two different directions. Now, Gary decided that in order to successfully escape from the police, his best bet would be to do so by boat. Now, since this case was all over the news and the media, most people were aware of it and knew that Gary Christ was a wanted man. The public was notified about the details of the ransom money and how it was all in 20s. So when Gary bought a boat using all $20 bills in cash, it definitely sparked the interest of the boat seller who contacted authorities. Now, ultimately, the police were able to get their eyes on Gary via a helicopter that followed him for 12 hours. Now, ultimately, being contacted through this boat seller, police were then able to get an idea of where Gary was going, and they were able to finally get their eyes on him about 12 hours later after Barbara was rescued. They were able to spot him via helicopter because Gary was already in the boat and was already on his way to trying to escape. But luckily, the police were able to stop Gary before he did, and he was arrested. Now, Gary did go to trial, but ultimately, he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Now, Ruth, on the other hand, was actually not found until several months later in March of 1969 in Norman, Oklahoma. She had applied for a job working at a hospital, and when she did, she had to give her fingerprints, which is ultimately what linked her and was what police were able able to use to identify her. Now, Ruth also was convicted. However, she was only sentenced to seven years in prison and actually only ended up serving four of those seven years. And once she was released, she was put on parole and sent back to Honduras. Now, Gary, like I said, he was convicted and he was sentenced to life in prison. However, after only 10 years, years. He was released on parole and was actually allowed to enroll in medical school. Of all things, he was allowed to enroll in medical school due to a pardon that he was granted. Now, a pardon basically means that the government allowed him to be relieved of some of his legal consequences. Why him? I don't know. Personally, I don't believe that the man who kidnapped a 20-year-old and buried her alive for three days deserves much leniency, but that's just me. But like I said, they did pardon him and he practiced medicine in Indiana. However, his license was revoked in 2003 after he was caught lying about a disciplinary action during his residency. Three years later in 2006, he was arrested off the coast of Alabama on a sailboat after he was found with 31 pounds of cocaine and was sentenced to five years in prison, but then released again in November of 2010. So as of now, Gary and Ruth are both released and free. Now, as for Barbara, her and Stuart did get married and have two sons together. However, unfortunately, Stuart recently has passed away. 
But the two of them were able to get married and live a long and happy life together. And Barbara is still alive. So that, you guys, is the case of Barbara Mackle. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm really interested to see what you guys have to say about this one. But that will be all for me today. Thank you guys so much for joining me. If you are new here, again, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss Killer Instinct Wednesdays. I'll see you next week with a brand new one. And until then, stay safe. Bye, guys. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.